Well, without further ado, let's uh, dive into God's Word today. Uh, Once again, we're going to be in James chapter 5. You've probably heard that expression before, money talks. Money talks. And I was curious where that expression came from, so I did some research this last week, and I learned that this expression dates back almost 2,400 years to a Greek uh, philosopher and poet by the name of Euripides. Euripides talked about 2,400 years ago how money has the ability to influence and sway people in one direction or the other. And here in the past hundred years or so in the Western world, we've consolidated those insights to these two words, money talks. Whether we like it or not, the truth is money has the ability to talk people into changing their opinions. Uh, Money has the ability to get people to do things they otherwise wouldn't be willing to do. Uh, Think about criminal defense attorneys. Uh, Think about abortionists. Think about politicians, all who at times say and do things they normally wouldn't say or do if it wasn't for the motivation of some money. Money talks. And this morning, as we turn in our Bibles to this final chapter of James, God's Word will shine the spotlight on a future day when our money will talk louder than ever before. There's going to be a day in the future when our money, my money, your money, talks more loudly than ever before. And so James wants us to be prepared for this day. And he wants us to understand the implications of, of that day when our money will speak loudly because what it says on that future day will echo throughout all eternity. So make sure you have your Bibles open to James chapter 5 starting in verse 1. I'm calling today's message Money Talks. We're in James 5 starting in verse 1. It reads, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth is rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Almighty. You have lived, or I should say, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. Remember that the churches James wrote to contained both rich Christians and poor Christians. So as you make your way through the five chapters of the book of James, you'll see uh, that on certain occasions uh, there are verses where James speaks directly to poor Christians. And there are other verses, other passages in these five chapters where he speaks directly to rich Christians. And so this is another passage where he's speaking directly to rich Christians. But unlike those last verses in chapter 4, he's not as much speaking to rich merchants who were going throughout the Roman world buying and selling goods and making all these plans that didn't include God. Here in chapter 5, especially these first six verses, he's addressing rich landowners. Rich landowners. 
But I want you to look again at what he says in verses 1, 3, and 5. Because I don't think he was just speaking to Christian landowners, rich Christian landowners. I think he may have been speaking to another group as well. So listen to these uh, parts of these verses again and see if you agree. Verse 1, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Verse 3, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Verse 5, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Now, I, I don't know about you, but as I read those verses, that sounds more like a description of hell to me than it does a description of heaven. Would you agree? Sounds more like hell than heaven. And so in all likelihood, James in these verses is not simply addressing rich Christian landowners. In all likelihood, he's also, kind of in the spirit of the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, addressing rich non-Christian landowners. And so in all likelihood, James is writing these six verses of chapter 5 to both groups, rich Christian landowners and rich non-Christian landowners. So if you are a committed follower of Jesus Christ, you need to pay attention to what is said in this passage here. Now you might say, well, I'm not rich, so that rules me out. Well, remember, compared to most people on the planet today, all of us are quite wealthy. We have blessings like air conditioning on hot days that most people in the world don't have. We have food every time we get hungry. We have a roof over our heads. Most of, it, most of us have vehicles to drive. We have technology that allows us to watch a service like this online. And so by the standards that most people around the world would go by, yes, we are very wealthy. And whether you are a Christian who has been blessed with many things by God, or you're a non-believer, someone that's just checking out this broadcast today and trying to figure out a, a little bit more about what this uh, Jesus thing, what this Christianity thing is all about, these words are for you. This teaching is for you. Whether you're a believer or not a believer yet, this teaching is something that God wants you to pay attention to and apply to your life today. Well, I'd like to tackle this passage a little differently than usual. Normally, I'd start at the top and we'd work our way down. But I'd like us to, uh, just for a little while, skip the first two verses. I'd like us to start in, in verse 3, because in verses 3 through 6, James points out four money sins that these rich landowners in his day were committing. And I want us to look, first of all, at these four money sins, and then we'll go back and look at verses 1 and 2, where our money is going to be talking at some point down the road. So let's take a look at these four money sins that he points out in verses 3 through 6. And before I share the first one with you, I want you to keep two verses in mind. First of all, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. God's Word says in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Contrary to popular belief, the Bible does not teach that money is the root of all kinds of evil. The Bible never teaches that about money. The Bible teaches that money is neutral. It is neither good nor bad. It's uh, neither righteous nor unrighteous. It's an inanimate tool that could be used for good or it could be used for evil. What the Bible teaches is the love of money is the root of all kinds 
of evil. I like how a wise man once said it. He said, it is good to have money in your hand as long as you don't have money in your heart. Isn't that good? It's good to have money in your hand as long as you don't have money in your heart. There's one more verse that's important to keep in mind before we look at these four money sins in these early verses of James chapter 5. And that verse is Matthew 19.24 where Jesus says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Translation, it's not impossible for a rich person to get saved. Remember, with God, all things are possible. But it's really, really hard. (laughs) It's not impossible for a rich man to get saved, but it's really, really hard. Unfortunately, more times than not, rich people have money in their hearts. They push God off the throne of their lives, and they replace him with money. Instead of loving the Lord their God with all their hearts, they push him aside and love money with all their hearts. They really have a love affair with money. Now, with those two verses in mind, let's check out these four money sins that James addresses here in James chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. The first of those money sins we find in verse 3, and it goes like this. They hoarded their wealth. Those rich landowners that James was addressing in these first six verses, they were hoarding their wealth. Have you ever watched one of those hoarding reality shows on TV? There's several of them that have been out in the last 10 to 15 years. And, and you know, if you've ever watched one of those shows like me, uh, you've just kind of watched in stunned silence as the video camera makes its way through that house. Uh, you'll find some of these houses that are so filled with clutter, uh, you can't even find a path to carve through it. I, I remember I was watching one of these shows a few years ago, and uh, something I saw I don't think I'll ever forget Uh, They were digging through the lady's bedroom that had been piled full of several feet of trash and belongings that she had. And when they dug through the top one foot of that stuff that was collected in her bedroom, they found a dead cat. And the people were shocked, and they showed it to that lady that owned that house, and she said, my beloved cat disappeared about six months ago, and I wondered where it had gone. She didn't even know that her own cat was buried underneath her own stuff. Now, these are extreme examples we see in shows like this. And we stand back and we say, well, at least I'm not that bad. I'm not that much of a pack rat. I'm not uh, that much of a hoarder. But, yeah, those people oftentimes have a mental illness that goes along with some simple temptations to hoard. And so let's step back from the extreme examples and look at ourselves. God's word makes it clear that hoarding is a sin. Now, it doesn't just mean that you have to have your house uh, floor to ceiling uh, with all this stuff to be considered a hoarder. If you have much more than you need to live on, then God may be saying to you today, you're hoarding more than you should. The Bible is clear that hoarding is a sin. Here on earth, the Bible teaches that we are stewards, not owners of the stuff that's in our possession. You possess your clothes, but you don't own your clothes. You possess your house, but you don't own your house. You possess your car, but you don't own your car. It all, according to God's word, belongs to him. 
All of the stuff in your possession ultimately belongs to him. He is the owner. You are just the manager. And the real owner of all of our stuff commands us to hold it with a very loose grip. We're not to hold our things in this life tightly because they're not ours to hold on to. We hold everything that's in our possession with a light grip. God commands us to use what we have in our possession for the good of others and for the glory of God. And you'll hear me repeat this several times over the next few minutes. Everything that's in your possession is not for you. Everything in your possession is on loan from God to be used for the good of others and for the glory of God. For the good of others and the glory of God. In fact, I'd like you to repeat this after me. And regardless of where you're watching this, in your family room, in your bedroom, or, or with your family somewhere else, I want you to repeat this after me out loud. Here we go. My stuff, my stuff, does not belong to me, does not belong to me. It belongs to God, it belongs to God. And God asks me, and God asks me, to use all of this stuff, to use all of this stuff, for the good of others, for the good of others, and for the glory of God, and for the glory of God. Were you able to say that in good conscience? All of that stuff that's in your possession, it's not yours, it's God's. And it's designed by God to be used for the good of others and for the glory of God. The real owner asks us to use what we have for the good of others. So when it comes down to it, there are two reasons why hoarding is a sin. There's probably more than two, but here are two of the main ones. Number one, it shows that our priorities are all screwed up. When we hoard more than we need, it shows that our priorities are all screwed up. Jesus makes it very clear in the Sermon on the Mount that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. So if we keep accumulating all sorts of stuff and hold tightly to our stuff, our hearts will be all wrapped up in that stuff, and that's idol worship. Our hearts are supposed to be all wrapped up in God and God alone, not to be wrapped up in all of our stuff. And the second reason why uh, hoarding is a sin is because it deprives others of their needs. It deprives others of their needs. If you have a, a closet full of clothes or shoes uh, that you aren't wearing, clothes and shoes that you don't need, you're depriving others of those clothes and those shoes that they need, that they could benefit from. You have plenty of shoes probably you're not wearing. They're much nicer than the shoes some homeless guy in Victorville is wearing every day. Uh, you have clothes in your closet and jackets and coats that are probably much nicer than the ones that others who are less fortunate than you are able to wear when it gets cold in, in the wintertime. And so God has said, if you have all this stuff that you're not using and you don't need, it's really sinful to not make that available for others to use. It truly does deprive others of their needs when we hoard what we don't need. If you have a garage full of tools or sports equipment that you don't use, you're depriving low-income families of the tools and sports equipment that they could be using to bless their families. In verses 2 and 3, James identifies uh, three kinds of riches that the rich people in his day were hoarding. Number one was wealth. That's most likely referring to their crops in their fields and the food that they ate. 
Number two was clothes. And number three was silver and gold. So if you look at these together, the, the wealth and the clothes and the silver and gold, you can remember these a little more easily if you remember the three G's. Goods, garments, and gold. Goods, garments, and gold. And God says in his word here in James chapter 5, Christians, regardless of how rich or poor you think you are, if you've got stuff sitting around that you're not using on a regular basis that someone less fortunate could be blessed by, do not hang on to those goods. Do not hang on to those garments. Do not hang on to that silver and gold. Use it as a blessing to others who are in need of those things. Goods, garments, and gold, God has called us to share those with those around us who are less fortunate. The rich non-Christians that James was condemning were hoarding food. Uh, they could have fed the poor. They were hoarding clothes. They could have clothed the poor. And they were hoarding gold that could have been used to care for the poor. And so I want to suggest that maybe God is speaking to you today. And he's asking you to loosen your grip on some of the stuff that's in your possession. Some of the stuff you've been holding on to. Uh, perhaps you need to bless others with some clothes or some shoes in your closet. Maybe you need to pull a, a few dozen books off your shelf and, and donate them to our Christian book drive so we can bless local prisoners with those Christian books that they would be drawn closer to Christ by reading. Uh, maybe God is laying on your heart to go through your garage and collect some items that would be more useful to others than they are to you. And you could take them down to the, the Victor Valley Rescue Mission or to the Salvation Army Store. Maybe God is leading you to open your home to others to share a meal with them. Maybe God's calling you to use that car that he's blessed you with to give others rides to the doctor or rides to the store or rides to church. As James reminds us at the end of verse 3, we are in the last days. The time of Jesus' return is closer than it's ever been, so it's more important than ever before that we don't allow our hearts to get wrapped up in our stuff. And we must use that stuff, those goods, uh, those garments, and that gold to bless others and to bring glory to Almighty God. Well, hoarding wasn't the only money sin that the rich landowners in James' day were guilty of. The second sin that James points out is here in verse 4. They defrauded their workers. They defrauded their workers. According to verse 4, the rich landowners had ripped off their poor workers. They promised to pay them a certain wage, but after the workers did their work, the landowners didn't pay them. Now, how would you like to have your boss come to you on payday and say, Hey, I'm sorry, you know, I'm fresh out of money. I'm sorry, I checked my checking account today and my balance is too low. I can't pay you today. Well, you might be okay with that once, right? But if the next day he said the same thing, you're thinking, why did I work today? I was supposed to get paid yesterday. And you come back the next day and he doesn't pay you that day either. You work for a week and a month and he hadn't paid you for all of that time. Uh, you would feel gypped and you'd quit that job, right? Well, these not these uh, uh, poor Christians, and maybe even some poor non-Christians who were working for these wealthy landowners, they were getting ripped off. They were promised a certain wage, and those rich landowners weren't paying it. They were defrauding their workers. So the rich landowners in James' day had some accounting to do. Uh, they had some answering to do to God. Because God gives us this command in Romans 13, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt 
to love one another. This verse doesn't just apply to borrowers who need to pay back a loan. It also applies to employers who need to pay their employees and their suppliers what they owe them. You know, my heart drops when I learn of Christian business owners that rip off their employees. My heart drops when I hear of Christian business owners who don't pay their bills. They don't keep up on their taxes. They don't pay their their vendors or, or pay their suppliers what they're supposed to. It's so important that Christians be above reproach. And when we commit to pay something, we pay it. We don't allow any debt to remain outstanding except that continuing debt to love one another. So, if you've borrowed money from someone, pay them back. If you've borrowed a tool from someone, give it back to them. And when you make a commitment to pay people for their services, pay them what you owe them. Sin number three we find in verse five. They lived lives of selfish excess while people around them starved. That was a terrible sin that these rich landowners were committing. They lived these lives of luxurious excess while the poor workers that they were failing to pay starved in front of them. It's clear from verse 5 that these rich people James condemned were hedonists. They lived for pleasure, but not just pleasure, extravagant pleasure. And all the while they turned a blind eye to those around them who would have been blessed with even the scraps from their dinner tables. It's not a sin to be rich. It's not a sin to have nice things. But it is a sin to have more than you need while turning a blind eye to those around you who God has called you to help. You've been called to bless your neighbor, to love your neighbor, to help take care of the needs of your neighbor when they're down and out. And it is a sin to live in luxury while those around you go without basic needs. Sin number four we find in verse six. They had condemned and ruined the lives of innocent men. They had condemned and ruined the lives of innocent men. The rich landowners, in most cases, had not pulled the trigger that ended someone's life. The word translated as condemned is actually a legal term that James uses here. So James is indicating that the rich landowners had a nasty habit of dragging innocent, uh, poor workers into court and doing whatever it took to win the case, no matter how crooked it was, to see them condemned, to see these poor people out of the picture, these rich landowners were sparing no expense to get those poor workers to shut up and stop hassling them about needing their wages. And so God, through James, speaks out and reveals these four money sins that these rich landowners were committing. They hoarded their wealth. They defrauded their workers. They lived lives of selfish excess while people around them starved. And then finally, they condemned and ruined the lives of innocent men. So, here in verses 3 through 6, James makes it clear that those four money sins have no place in the life of a Christian. We must make sure they're nowhere to be found in the way that we handle or view our money. Which leads us back to the first two verses that we put on hold for a few minutes. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me again. James writes, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail. Because of the misery that is coming upon you, your wealth has rotted. And moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. 
their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Now, I'd like you to look again at verse 1, because there's an important question that I'd like you to answer. Here's the question. Is James asking us to look back, to look around us today, or to look forward? Here in verse 1, he's asking us to look forward, right? Look at it again. He's asking us to look forward. He's asking us to look ahead. Why? Why does he want us to look ahead? Well, he's asking us to look ahead because one day our lives here on earth will end. And we will have to stand before Almighty God and be judged for the lives that we lived. And for some of us, there will be hell to pay for the lives that we lived, in particular because of the way that we handled our money and our possessions. And so James is saying right from the get-go here in chapter 5, some of you rich people, because of the way you've been handling money, you need to start weeping and wailing and repenting right now. You need to start making some changes immediately. He, in essence, is saying, hey, all you hoarders, look down the road and, and see what's coming. Hey, all you lying and cheating employers who are ripping off your employees, look up ahead. Hey, all you self-serving jerks, hit the fast-forward button. Hey, all you homewreckers, mark my words, judgment day is coming. It's coming. And make no mistake about it. On that judgment day, your money will talk. On that judgment day, your money will talk, and your car and your house will talk, your wardrobe and your electronic devices will talk, and your tools and your toys and even your investments will all talk. And when they talk, what will they say about you? James makes it clear to these rich, selfish landowners, when they stand before God on judgment day, their money, their possessions, their things will have a lot to say about their lives, and what they have to say will not be favorable. And let me ask you, how will your possessions speak of you on that judgment day? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10-15, through 15, Paul teaches us something very important about judgment day. He tells us in those verses that on judgment day, our life's work will be fed through the fire of testing. Everything that we've done in this life, it'll be fed through the fire of testing. And the things that we did during this life that were done out of selfishness to serve me, myself, and I, they will be like wood and hay and stubble as they make their way through the flames. In other words, they'll be consumed in the flames of testing. Everything that I do for myself will be consumed in the flames of testing. Only what we have done for the good of others... And for the glory of God, we'll make it through on the other side. Paul says there in 1 Corinthians, it'll be like gold and silver and precious stones. It will make it through the fire of testing. And so the similar thing could be said about how we handle our money here on earth. Uh, one day, God, I believe, will feed our money and our possessions through the flames of testing. 
and all that we have accumulated here on earth, whether it's our home or our vehicles or our clothes or our electronic devices or the stuff in our garage or storage shed, all of that will be fed through the flames and only that which was done for the good of others and used, used I should say, used for the good of others and used for the glory of God will have anything to show for it on the other end of those flames. What an incredible thought. Only what we have in our possession that we use for the good of others and for the glory of God will make it through the flames of testing. And so on that day, make no mistake about it, as your stuff goes through the fire, your stuff will speak. Your house will speak. It'll spill the beans and let God know whether or not you used it for the good of others and the glory of God. Your cars will speak, ratting you out, letting God know whether or not you used them for the good of others and the glory of God. Your clothes and your tools and your bank accounts and all that other stuff that you have had during this lifetime, the cat will be out of the bag. Or you could say it this way, all of those possessions, as they go through the flames, will be like the cat hidden under a foot of crud in that bedroom. As all the stuff is peeled back and fed through the flames, the dead cat will be revealed. God will see whether or not what you had in your possession was used for the good of others and the glory of God. Your possessions will speak. Your money will speak. And when it does speak, what will it say about you? What will it say about you? You've all heard it said that you can't take it with you, right? You can't take it with you. But God lets us know that if we are believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we can send it on ahead. Here's how it works. If you use what's in your possession for the good of others and the glory of God, that will be metamorphosized into treasure in heaven. Just like a little caterpillar being transformed into a beautiful butterfly, the stuff you have in your possession here on earth will one day all burn. It'll all be burned up someday. But you know what? If you've used that stuff for others' good and for the glory of God, God will transform and metamorphosize that stuff here on earth into treasure in heaven. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. No, you can't send your house or your car or your bank account to heaven. But if you are a believer and follower of Christ, that can be transformed into treasure in heaven. On Judgment Day, it will be a beautiful transformation that takes place as God gives you that reward for what you've done for the good of others and for the glory of God. Christians, let me say this as I kind of wind this sermon down. Whatever money you have been blessed with, And whatever things you have been blessed with, don't hoard them. Hold your possessions very loosely. They are God's, so be generous. Share what you have. Use it for the advancement of Christ's kingdom here on earth. On a certain day, a family gathered together for the funeral of a dear lady in their church who had died of cancer. And there was a viewing before that memorial service, and one by one, each of the members of that church came forward, and they glanced down into that open casket. And as the pastor watched, he saw that every single person who glanced down into that casket had this surprised and shocked look on their face. They looked, they reacted, and they turned around and went back to their seats. 
Well, the viewing time came to an end and that funeral service began. And the pastor said this. He said, I saw the look on your faces when you looked at Mary lying there in her casket. And I know you all have the same question. Why on earth is she holding a fork? Why is she holding a fork there in that casket? Well, it was one of her final requests. You see, she told me a few weeks ago that in all her years of attending church socials and potluck dinners, she always remembered that when the dishes of the main course were being cleared, someone would inevitably lean over and say, Keep your fork. Keep your fork. It was my favorite part because I knew that something better was coming. I knew that it was possibly either velvety chocolate cake or or deep dish apple pie, something wonderful and with substance. So I just want people to see me there in that casket with a fork in my hand, and I want them to wonder, what's with the fork? Then I want you to tell them, keep your fork, because the best is yet to come. Isn't that true? The best is yet to come. When you think about it, we've got some nice stuff here on earth. But it's nothing compared to what awaits us in heaven. It's nothing compared to what we'll experience in eternity. So make sure that you keep the stuff of this world that's in your possession held very, very loosely. Not entrenched in your heart, but held loosely in your hand. Two quick applications for this message. Number one. Put God first in your finances. The biblical teaching is tithing. God has taught his people for thousands of years to put him first in their finances. Everything that we have is his. And when we tithe, when we give God the first portion, ideally the first 10% of our income, when we give God that first portion... We are making it clear, God, you are number one with my money. It's all yours, and I'm giving the first portion back to you for your work. That's the first challenge this week. Put God first in your finances. And number two, give away some of your stuff. (laughs) Give away some of your stuff. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And make no mistake about it, the best is yet to come. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We praise you and thank you that you own everything. It's not mine, God. It's just on loan. Thank you, Lord, for the vehicle I get to drive. Thank you for the house I get to go home to with my family at night. Thank you, Lord, for the shirt on my back. Thank you, Lord, for this a video camera that's able to record this message. Thank you for our, our church buildings and facilities, O oh God. Thank you, Lord, for every possession we have. It's not mine. It's not ours. It's yours. And we just hold it loosely in our possession for a little while. And I pray that we would use what we have for the good of others and for the glory of God. I pray that we wouldn't hoard it, God, but that we would use it as a tool to point people to Jesus Christ and to advance the kingdom of Christ. Lord Jesus, help us as we all make specific decisions, even today, to walk into our garage and start putting some things together to be given away. 
as we start pulling some Christian books and unused Bibles off of our bookshelves and prepare to give them away. As we go into our closets and pull some clothes, Lord, off of the hangers and prepare to give them away. Help us, Lord, to hold what is in our possession loosely. Not just today, not just this week, but for the rest of our lives until you call us home. May we use what you've put in our care for the good of others and for the glory of God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. If you're here today and you've never made a decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to urge you to make that decision right now. It's very simple to put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's hard to live for Him faithfully, but it's simple to begin that Christian walk. Think of the ABCs. A. Admit that you're a sinner. That you need Jesus to forgive you and make you right with God. B. Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins so that you could be forgiven and have that relationship with God and get to go to heaven someday. And C. Choose to follow Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. That means your boss, your leader, your master. Choose to follow Him from this point forward until He calls you home to heaven. Admit, believe, and choose.